Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Story Smack. Welcome to Story Smack. This is episode 59. Story Smack is a podcast about stories and storytellers in the world of pop culture. My name is A.B. Sigler, audiobook narrator and founding partner at Empty Set Entertainment. And my name is Scott Sigler, number one New York Times bestselling novelist, and I may have stepped on a duck. And since I don't feel good about the belly, I may be stepping on several ducks here today. <laughs> and back with us again today, lucky us, is Empty Set movie maven Rob Otto. Hello, How are Rob you, Rob? Otto. Hey, is that your wife? I feel like they earned fourteen dollars the hard way. <laughs> I had to, I had to explain to A why the fourteen dollars the hard way was funnier than like a hundred dollars the hard way, and it took a while because I had to really think it through. But yeah. fourteen being a random number for a uh, an escort, I think. So we are here, obviously, if you can't tell already, to talk about Caddyshack, and I know you and Rob had. Um, have a long and storied history as youths, as youths, as youths, as, as the youths. Uh, Rob, I I cannot estimate how many times I have uh, watched this movie. Can you? No, I can't estimate how many times you've watched this movie. <laughs> to be fair, we knew that was coming. I've also watched it a large number of times, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we used to this uh, back in the days. I, I hate to date, date ourselves, but back in the days of VHS. We had this one and at several houses, and it was watched repeatedly, put on uh, either to to hang out or in the background as we role play D and D or Champions was a big one or any or Star Frontiers. Remember that one? Holy cats, going way way back. Anybody, if you were role players back in the day, mention in the chat room. You Utes probably don't know what that is. Although D and D is making a comeback yeah. right here, big comeback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so we are definitely discussing Caddyshack today. Would you like to uh, transition and give us your movie I would. trailer voice? Guide? I think the cold actually helps with Let's this. Let's find out. Let's find out. <clears throat> Danny Noonan, a teen down on his luck, works as a caddy at the snob-infested Bushwood Country Club to raise money for his college education. In an attempt to gain votes for a college scholarship reserved for caddies, Noonan volunteers to caddy for a prominent and influential club member. Meanwhile, Danny struggles to prepare for the high-pressure Caddy Day Golf Tournament while absorbing new-age wisdom from wealthy golf guru Ty Webb. Also, Carl Spackler chases a gopher. Is that the actual... No, I added the gopher part. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to. Because <laughs> for a classic, for a classic, that's all you need to say. Oh, Carl Spackler, good, good to go. Yeah, but there's so much interesting about that particular character, which we'll dive into. I felt we, you gotta meant that you gotta mention it, but that wasn't part of the movie trailer because Honestly, it wasn't supposed I didn't, to matter. I didn't hear anything until the last, you know, four words. Carl Spackler chases a gopher. <laughs> I guess that's five words. Yeah, I'm not wrong though. No. no, that's true. So this one, guys, was shot um, on location at the Rolling Hills Country Club in Boca Raton, Florida. Oh, wow. Quick side note on that. So it was very funny. You know, first time producer, Doug Kenny, first time director and Harold Ramis. And they knew they wanted to be as far away from Hollywood as possible when they shot this movie. OK, uh, because there were plenty of places they could have shot it around L.A. So the excuse they made up was we don't want any palm trees in the background because it's supposed to be the Midwest. 
but we're shooting it in the fall into the winter, so we can't actually shoot in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. So where did they go? Florida, surrounded by palm trees. So, (laughs) yes. Well done, guys, because this was supposed to kind of fill in for a couple of um, golf courses that the Murray brothers worked at as... You know, salesmen as well as loopers, you know, looper, you know, looper. caddy, the jock. And uh, when they were growing up in Illinois outside of Chicago. And, and the so- fiction, fictional Bushwood Country Club is actually supposed to be the one outside of Chicago. Because there's a handful of things on the Internet that some, for some stupid reason say Nebraska. I never read that until I was working on prep for this show. I always understood it to be their home Golf course. They're the, the Murray it's, Brothers it's, experience. It's supposed to emulate their home golf course, yeah. right? Yeah, but that's Chicago. That's not Nebraska. No, there's, a, there's a line in the original script. At the end of the script, this script changed so much. It was a coming-of-age story about Danny Noonan. No, and no. it ends with he and the family at the airport, him getting on a plane for Omaha, Nebraska, mm. assuming that he's going to go to law school at Nebraska, apparently. I don't know. I so bet that's totally it. That's where Nebraska came in, but... Just because he's getting on a plane to Nebraska doesn't mean he's already in Nebraska or else they just would have driven yeah. his ass there. I'm so glad I, I asked, yeah, because I was so confused about that part. I was like, I've never heard that before. Uh, Rob, do you, we have a question in the chat room. Do you know which course the Murray brothers worked at? In, uh, yeah, uh, well, I, they worked at several, but one of them was Indian Hill Club okay. um, in Winnetka, Illinois. That, that was the one that... Winnetka. Hey, you know what? We're from Winnetka. I also Winnetka. love uh, that the Murray family, good Irish Catholic family, there's mm-hmm. nine children. There are three Murray girls. Okay. Yep. Um, but I also never really even thought to think about that until I was researching this for today's show. Because uh, uh-huh. the Murray boys, the Murray boys, the Murray, Murray boys brothers, are very famous. Murray boys. Yeah. yeah. And they're all actors. And the, and the girls, uh, one of them is a chef. The girls. The sisters. Uh, one of them is a chef. And I think one of them is like manages their restaurant or something like that. But... Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, so, by the way, we are drinking, uh, uh, on the West Coast anyway, we are drinking the El pa- pa- Palenka um, from Shaker and Spoon. Uh, these are just sort of uh, totally not sponsored, but totally fun, totally uh, fun drinks. I'm drinking a hot toddy because mm. I'm feeling slightly under the weather, and A makes a sick-ass hot toddy. Rob, are you, uh, are you partaking or are you just hanging up? I am drinking El Agua from <laughs> Pure, which is a wonderful Michigan company. So there you go. My drink comes with a dehydrated slice of pineapple. Oh, wow. Are you yeah. can eat that? Mine one? comes with uh, rehydrated, dehydrated water. How do, you, mm. how do you fix dehydrated water? That's the question. Uh, water let's get into it, ladies and gentlemen. A, do you have any financial particulars on this movie? How did it do I in the box office? I do. So it, um, the budget was $6 million. That's what it cost to make this movie. Um, it took in shy, uh, just, just, just shy of $40 million domestically. And if you adjust that $40 million to today, it would have taken in $134 million domestically. Uh, if anybody's watching this and you just got blocked out of the chat room because you worked at a game store back in the <laughs> 80s or 90s, that's my bad. Throw me it throws an email at info at empty set so we can get that fixed after the fact. I meant to respond, say, bless you for the Lord's work of working in a game store because yeah, you were very influential to people like me and Rob back in the day. And then I then I blocked you because I'm I'm a savage. That's how we do things. Mm. Um, so that money was a it was a huge disappointment at the time because they were really? coming off Ramus and Kenny were coming off of Animal House, mm-hmm. which was made for about three million dollars. And made like $140 million or something like that. So, of course, Orion was thinking, well, this is going to be even bigger. And so they spent twice as much and made less than half as much. So they even well, that's a huge amount of money. Over $35 million on a $7 million investment. Great. Fantastic. Seems positive to me. 
they were still upset. Um, now, is there any kind of have either of you guys? I could look this up too. Anybody gone in and seen after the fact merchandising, VHS, so, DVD, etc.? So there, there is a whole bunch, of course, to talk about on the internet. People talk about this movie all the time, just like the last one we did. Uh-huh. And yes, there, it, the thing that saved this movie, the, it's sort of like Trolls 2. It didn't do well at the box office. Not that yeah. Trolls 2 had a box office, but it got this cult following. Literally, you guys are part of the reason that we're talking about it today, because it was one of... Um, it was easily available, quickly available, right when the Betamax VHS wars ended, and okay. VHS was the thing, and they okay. were ready to go. And then it became a cult classic. And you know, I don't. I think it is. It's deserving of its cult classic status. It's kind of a you know a little picture into the 1980s. It's a, it's a, it's incredible. We're going to talk about it. We're going to start out by breaking down the cast, since we're going to be including scriptwriters and directors in the cast. Uh, a lot of the juicy details of this movie are going to come out as we discuss it. But let's let's talk about talk about Hollywood royalty in the field of comedy. There's very, very few like this. Let's go to the actors. Mm-hmm. Starting out with the late, great Harold Ramis. Uh, Caddyshack was his directorial debut. He was also one of the co-writers for it. He went on to write, direct, and or produce 23 films and TV projects. He died at 69, oh yeah, from autoimmune vascular. I'm just saying, if you got to die at an, old, uh, an age that's not like 180, 69 is a good number to go at. Mm-hmm. Um, he also acted in dozens of projects throughout, throughout particularly Stripes, which I think is his absolute, yeah. his absolute standout. He was so accomplished. He was so accomplished as a creator, and I think this is relatively unusual for a, a person who focuses on comedy, that uh, President Barack Obama released a statement on his death. Yeah. Uh, so when Harold Ramis died, which was way too soon, uh, President Obama said, when we watched his movies from Animal House and Caddyshack to Ghostbusters and Groundhog's Day, we didn't just laugh till it hurt. We questioned authority. We identified the outsider. We rooted for the underdog. And through it all, we never lost our faith in happy endings. President Obama ended his statement by saying he hoped Ramis had received total consciousness, which, of course, is a reference to a line from Caddyshack. Uh, yeah, and I, uh, we, we have a rough script that we go through for these shows, and I had never heard that uh, President Obama had honored him. And then when I read that last line, I was like, you son of a bitch, Obama. Oh. <laughs> it, got, it, got a little, it got a little wet in, in the room, a little bit, a little bit dusty. Yeah, I was just like, that's, I don't know if you, I don't know, be, probably, Obama probably didn't write that. He had great, great writers and great people managing the business around him. But I was like, you son of a bitch. That, you, you shouldn't have made me cry in that. Like, what, 20 years after the fact now? Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, so. He may not have written it, but I'm sure he actually understood it, unlike some people's speeches. I think. <laughs> um, so, big thing that you guys mentioned: first directorial project uh-huh. for Harry Ramis. So again, the Orion Pictures was so giddy over the moon that they threw mm-hmm. a couple million dollars at a stupid college movie that they never had any expectations at an Animal House that turned into a you know a, a huge boon for you know the folks at National Lampoon, which is where both Doug Kenny and Harold Ramis came from. Mm-hmm. That when they said, okay, well, well, we'll we'll sell you this movie, but Harold has to direct and Doug has to produce. So a first-time producer, a first-time director, on location, thousands of miles away from Los Angeles. It's crazy to think about it. Now, there are some uh, – one big story that I think is probably apocryphal, 
and and uh, Harold Ramis has denied it. But supposedly on the first day of shooting, uh, he walked up to the first camera that was set up and looked in the wrong end. Um, which oh. you think that's a pretty good start to the first day, right? Now, a couple of stories that he has never denied uh, is that uh, they were getting ready for the very first shoot, and, and this is the smart thing to do. You've got a first-time director. Mm-hmm. You surround them with assistant directors and cinematographers that really know what the hell they're doing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they did this with Harold, and so they're getting ready for the first shot, you know, the big wide-open shots that they did um, on the on the golf course, right? And the, the, the uh, cinematographer says, okay, so what, where do we want to set up the cameras? And Harold just kind of looked around and said, well, how about over here? And so the cinematographer said, really, you want to, you want to shoot right at the... Uh, all the trailers and uh, craft <laughs> services and the makeup tent. And Harold said, oh, yeah, well, maybe, we'll sh- maybe we'll set up over here. And he said, from that point forward, he just asked the cinematographer where the, he thought that's, they should set up. That's the smart, way you should do it. That's smart the way you should do it. Yeah. I was just about to say, that that doesn't make him a terrible director necessarily. No. That makes him a, a, a willing to learn. And, of mm-hmm. course, he earned out. He got a whole lot better, a whole lot. Well, not during this show this shoot but he got a whole lot better a whole lot faster which is lucky for us and rob uh, doug kenny has quite a track record as i understand Ooh. it in the in the world of entertainment oh. yeah i mean doug kenny came uh, from harvard where they were doing the harvard lampoon which has been around for you know more than 100 years mm-hmm. and they decided when they graduated they just didn't they just didn't want to stop doing it and so they made the national lampoon and that's really oh, where wow. all these threads come from and you think about eddie bunn on that initial snl cast um, you know, just geniuses, the Murray brothers, everybody. A lot came, of Second City. Uh, Gilda Radner, they all came out of National Lampoon. Second City, yeah, it was just was a feeder. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. exactly right. And so, so Doug Kenny was the one who ended up writing this movie, and he really brought everybody in. Um, and so he co-wrote this with Harold and with uh, Brian Doyle Murray, uh, one of the Murray brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, they also did Animal House, which is really how this whole thing got off the ground. Um, and so, you know, it's really once once Kenny decided they were moving into movies, he quit the National Lampoon, just kind of moved forward from there. OK. And then um, once Animal House was a huge hit, Kenny and Ramis were able to do it um, with one caveat, which is they didn't have a huge budget, but they needed someone that the uh, the the Orion pictures would look at and say that is a verifiable star movie star. OK. And until they got that. Nobody signed off, but then they got uh, one uh, Chevy Chase to mm-hmm. sign on to this movie. He was just coming off the movie Foul Play, okay. huge hit with Goldie Hawn, had already been on Saturday Night Live, and Chevy Chase was the reason this movie got made. One of the things I love about that is if you're here in 2020 and you think about, <clears throat> and somebody had asked you that at a like a bar trivia night, pretending we could have bar trivia nights. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> But had that come up at a bar trivia night, so the the movie wouldn't get greenlit until they got a star. Mm-hmm. In 2020, which which actor would you guess was that star? Because in 2020, oh, you mean in, in retrospect, in looking retrospect, at the cast now, which one do you yeah, think got him the money? And of course, I think everybody, because the movie is shaped around around. Uh, Bill Murray's character, yeah. Um, well, shaped around the gopher, but we'll talk about that in a minute too. <laughs> but you know that e- that isn't where the movie started. So even when it started, it, it they needed uh, Chevy Chase. So both ways, because also the way the movie ended up, Carl has a much bigger role than he should have. And uh-huh. of course, now in 2020, Bill Murray is 
you know, a national treasure, weirdo national treasure. And so you might guess him in a bar, but you'd be wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Retrospect, if you had a second guess, it probably still wouldn't be Chevy Chase. It'd be Rodney Dangerfield. Absolutely. Absolutely. It feels like Rodney. We're going to get to Rodney in a little bit, but it feels like he was a huge star at the time. Uh, Rob, now, Kenny has this amazing success, right? Mm-hmm. And then, but it, it it did not go well for him. It sometimes happens in Hollywood. People have a massive success, don't handle it well. He didn't handle it well either, apparently. No, and it didn't help, the, you know, that he was doing about four pounds of cocaine every day. <laughs> that might have had something to do with it. But no, it was, listen, he's one of those guys, Doug Kenny was one of those guys, if you ever read his autobiography, that no matter what he did, he never thought it was good enough. Um, he also craved attention from his father, who just thought he was making dirty movies and silly magazines and never gave him <laughs> any of that credit either. Mm-hmm. Um, and so no matter what happened with Doug Kenny, um, it wasn't good enough. Now, he looks back at Animal House and says, OK, that actually was good enough. That was a huge success. Okay. But then, of course, the pressure to outdo it lands on your shoulders. Mm-hmm. And when Doug Kenny saw the final cut of this movie after they added more gopher, <laughs> um, which I know we will get into. He was so depressed. He was like, this is awful. He actually kind of broke in on a press junket that they were doing with, you know, before the movie to try and sell the movie, came in drunk as a skunk, okay. telling everyone who would listen how shitty this movie was. He hated the final cut. He hated what he thought Hollywood did to it. He hated that they even took away the coming of age story and changed the whole story. And Doug Kenny did not end well um, just a couple months after this movie was released. So that means he never really got to see how successful oh, and sure. how well received this movie was. And, the, and the, the, literally the decades of love and mm-hmm. fandom that this movie has engendered, he didn't. Was what happened to him? So, yeah, it's um, so after the review started coming in and remember, this is 1980. There wasn't it wasn't released to 600 theaters at once. They made 20 or 30 or 40 prints, started half of them in L.A. and half of them in New York. And it slowly moved across the country. So it wasn't even widely available by the time. So about two months after it came out in June, I want to say in in August, um, he was trying to you know, clean himself up or maybe going on a bender in Hawaii. And one day they just found him at the bottom of a 35 foot cliff. Um, And, you know, there were all sorts of signs up there that said, don't get too close to the edge. And Doug Kenny, everyone will tell you, was the kind of guy that if there was a sign that said, don't do something, Mm -hmm. um, he would do it. And if it was a time of selfies, he probably would have been taking selfies of himself doing it. Sure. And so they don't know if he jumped or if he fell um, some say that he fell trying to find a place to jump. Um, but, yeah, so, but, but you know, it's it's a again, somewhere in the chat room. Okay. Oh Lord. Oh Lord. Uh, but, that's, that's the terrible thing. Think about this. Okay. I mean, the guy the guy would still be around today, right? I mean, how many more animal houses and caddy shacks? Oh. In that guy's brain Absolutely. that we never got to see. And look at all, look what the rest of the cast has done, sticking together largely doing repeated projects. He could have been part yeah. of that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. He, I mean, think about it. He would have been part of Ghostbusters. He would have been part of, you know, anything that Murray did. He would have sure. been part of of, sure. uh, cat, of uh, Groundhog Day. He would have been part of all that. And, you know, it's a, it's an interesting thing. I have to say a couple of things. Uh, Howard DiNatale, who is a film buff, filmmaker. Film, Howard's big uh, in the movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cinephile, for sure, is in the chat room. And mm-hmm. he said, I do think you guys should mention the movie's fourth sponsor, Coke. 
cocaine. <laughs> and it is a long, it is a well-recognized thing that that this whole set was absolutely fueled by illicit drugs. And by the end of the and everybody thought they were having a good time. It was a it was a happy Cities. animal Cities. house. Yeah. Well, and it was an animal house like environment sure. and everything was fine and it's sort of animal house on a golf course and everybody's during the summer. Like mid early thirties, right? That well, yeah, but crew? it's also the, the, the woolly eighties, you okay, know, and everything okay, was continue. going, but by the end of the shoot and the start of the press junkets, it became clear that Doug Kenny was in over his head. Mm-hmm. And I understood, and I, I could absolutely be wrong, but I understood that, um, Chevy Chase was actually, because he was wealthier, he was a bigger star. He was the one who brought him to Hawaii to try to get mm-hmm. him away from all of his okay. drug yep. partying friends and stuff. Yep. And then he had to go work. He had to go back to work because he had another movie. So Doug Kenny's girlfriend flew out. And okay. then Doug Flint, Kenny's girlfriend had to fly back. And Chevy Chase was actually getting ready to go to Hawaii to hang out with Doug Kenny again when he got the call that he had yeah. died. I wonder if... Uh, Chevy Chase's job was to repair the handrail on the area that Doug I mean, Kenny fell off I mean, of. Uh, Chevy Chase worked a lot of jobs. Worked a lot but of jobs. There was when they were cleaning out his hotel room. Um, they found an, uh, in among his notes, he had been he had been workshopping a whole bunch of things and had a zillion notes. It doesn't honestly look like he thought he was going to die that day, from the sounds of things. Oh. And uh, he did write. There was a, a note scrawl on one of the notes, which was, or one of the pages, which was, "These last few days are among the happiest I've ever ignored." Crazy, crazy. So now, and this is one of my favorite parts about this movie is that one of the actors is one of the co-writers, and a lot of people know this. Who are movie buffs? Everyone's a movie buff knows this. A lot of people don't. That Bill Murray's brother was one of the screenwriters and mm-hmm. also starred in the movie. Brian Doyle Murray, yeah, is uh, is uh, one of Bill Ooh. Murray's older brothers. Uh-huh. Uh, Caddyshack is a. Uh, as I understand it, largely or somewhat autobiographical, based on the Murray boys' experience caddying in the summers at what was it, Indian Hills, Indian Wells? What was it? Is yeah. Indian Hill Hills. Club, right? Indian, Indian Hill Club, yeah. Um, so in the movie, you see there on the left, Brian does play Lou Loomis, who is the only one in the entire movie to actually say the word Caddyshack. Because he works in the Caddyshack. Uh, uh, And this was his movie debut. He had done some TV before that. He has since then done quite literally dozens and dozens of roles. He now, in his 60s, looks a lot like Santa Claus. And so you can find him almost every year in a Hallmark holiday movie. And I love that about him. He, But he's also been... He's that looks same, like a happy son bitch right there. I mean, me. wouldn't you be if you were a Murray brother? And, you you know, they're good. They seem to have had a, a, a rarity, right? They've had... Right. They've had somewhat untarnished, like fairly untarnished. Like they've done the stupid things everybody does, but they haven't done anything else. But he's been in a zillion movies, you know. He's okay. been in Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which I know is a TV show. I'm going to have to go back and watch it. I don't remember him in that one, but we'll have to find it tonight. Groundhog's yeah, Day, okay. Married with Children, Wayne's World, um, 16 Candles. And my favorite, he plays Jack Ruby in Oliver Stone's hyper-political JFK. Yeah, this and, this looks like a, this looks like an assassin right there, doesn't it? Lou, yeah, he doesn't look assassin. anything like that in JFK, but I love that he is very comfortable in his space being a comedic actor, writer, performer, and then also was like, no, yes, absolutely, I'll play Jack Ruby. I love that about him and good for him. Yes. Robin, this is, uh, he's not the only brother in the business, as I understand it. No, and actually, all six brothers play at least a cameo role in this movie. Some of them are uh, caddies, some of them are on, you know, part of Al Cervik's uh, table sitting at, which is actually where. Um, where Doug Kenny is at that one as well. He's he's one of our. Oh, is he? Friends. I didn't know that. That's great. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. yeah but he's all the of them are in that. And, and really, as A mentioned, um, the autobiographic biograph- the autobiographical nature, that opening scene, you know, where all the kids are trying to get into the bathroom at the same time and mom is going around the house and there's 700 kids in there. That was the Murray family. That's that's really where they got all that stuff from. That was an average morning trying to get ready in the Murray household. OK, OK. And, and the family and the parents were supposed to play a much bigger role because the movie, again, was supposed to center on Danny Noonan. Um, and and so they they just kind of after the first scene they pretty much disappeared. <laughs> I mean, they weren't in the rest of the movie, but that's how it all started out with all of the guys. Um, a lot of them they've been successful actors, they've been successful writers. They've all really stayed in the business. Um, but of course, we cannot talk about the Murray brother that yes. makes Caddyshack and really the through line of the entire movie. The icon. Uh, Mr. William Murray as a certain <laughs> Carl Jr. groundskeeper Spackler. And Rob, Rob, Rob blew me away with some of his knowledge. Again, I've watched this movie. It's possible I've watched this movie a hundred times. Triple digits. Rob brought some serious knowledge heat to this. Rob, share with us some of the stuff you have discovered. Well, here's the interesting thing. When they first wrote the script, Carl Spackler did not have a single line of dialogue. Um, he was going to be a a silent cameo. <laughs> but once they got Bill Murray to agree to do the role, and, and honestly, they weren't even sure when they were shooting if Bill was even going to show up. Uh-huh. But all of a sudden, he did show up. And they still didn't write a single line of dialogue for him. Bill Murray's entire performance Mm -hmm. is ad lib. Now, they would talk about the things that they wanted him to say. But essentially, like, um, when he's doing the Cinderella story, right? The script just says, um, Carl knocks the heads off of flowers with a weed whip and does play-by-play. Okay. That was it. And he went on for 30 minutes, which they <laughs> down to about five minutes or so. And it's gold. It's yeah. absolute gold. Everyone quotes that line. Sure. And it all came right off the top of Bill Murray. That's what a freaking genius he was. So they, they knew Bill from Second City in Chicago. Um, that's where he knew Harold and he knew um, and uh, Brian Doyle Murray. For those that, for those that don't know, uh, Second City was uh, largely an improv comedy troupe. So exactly right. most of what they do would do is they get these comedians together with a loose structure of what they want, what the scene they wanted to do. And part of the thrill was it was a different show every night because they're playing off each other and improvising and doing things in the moment. So when you talk about turn on the camera and let Bill Mur- here, Bill Murray, here's your one plug line, go crazy for 30 minutes. That's in his sweet spot, right? Yeah. Oh, that, sure. And that's exactly it. That's exactly it. It's funny. The, uh, the first scene that they shot with Bill, uh, was the scene where he's got um, Angie D'Annunzio, who's uh, Tony D'Annunzio, who, again, was supposed to be a main character in this movie. Angie's his younger brother. He wore the Knight Riders T-shirt mm-hmm. the whole time. Sure. No freaking idea what that was, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> he's got him up against the wall with the, with the pitchfork, and he's doing the whole uh, caddying for the Dalai Lama scene. Again, that was all improv? off the top of his head. Holy cat. But yeah, which is nice. After that played Angie, this is the first time he'd ever met him, right? And... Bill keeps poking him with the pitchfork. <laughs> and in between takes, he'd say, man, that, that's really starting to hurt. Will, will you stop poking me so hard? He was like, ah, relax, Bergdorf, I got this. <laughs> <laughs> 
In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. It's well, like unbelievable. We've got, uh, and Bill Murray has gone on, of course, to do just dozens of movies. It's incredible. I mean, this list doesn't even do him justice. I got a huge list in front of me, and it's Stripes, Tootsie, Ghostbusters, Razor's Edge, uh, Little Shop of Horror, Scrooge, Ed Wood, Kingpin. What about Bob? Groundhog Day, Space Jam, Rushmore, Groundhog Day. See, I did it. Wild Tannenbaums, Lost in Translation, Zombieland, and like, 50 more it's incredible he was one of the most prolific actors over the last 40 years in hollywood and he had done one movie he did meatballs prior to this oh god meatball how could i not oh my god summer camp right incredible the only movie he had done but it was enough proof that he worked on screen and could could control the camera because before that we'd only seen him for about a year when he took chevy chase's spot on saturday Mm -hmm. night live Mm -hmm. but that was it. And he came in and just exploded, still, just took the movie over. And still a Titan gets to do anything he wants to do. But what would this movie be? What would this movie be without one of my most beloved actors that I just adore? Mr. Rodney Dangerfield. Oh, hey, oh, oh geez. My head like that. Get a free bowl of soup. John Viscar just mentioned he showed up and he's uh, eating soup out of a hat. So yeah. <laughs> well, it looks good on you, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My dad loved Ronnie Dangerfield. Coach loved Ronnie Dangerfield. Still does not say. So we watched anything with Ronnie Dangerfield. We could on it. Of course, when this movie came out, it was just unbelievable. His real name was Jack Roy, mm-hmm. which is new, new information to me. I found that out. I didn't know that place. Wait yes, a minute. What? Yes. I have to interrupt. What? 
So Rodney Dangerfield spent a goodly amount of his life. He's, he started as a Borscht Belt comedian, of course. He's a he's a Brooklynite of Jewish descent. Okay. And so he totally was a Borscht Belt comedian. But he wanted a bigger, broader life. And he every role that he got that was at all dramatic was fine. Mm-hmm. But he looked and sounded like a Borscht Belt comedian. Okay. So he created Rodney Dangerfield as a, an act, just like Andy Kaufman Get the fuck out of here. And if you talk to his his uh, widow, his widow talk, and he did too at the end of his life. He was like, it was sometimes hard for him that, you know, he made this I don't get no respect persona and he did it so well that he absolutely usurped himself. <laughs> so he himself didn't get any respect. Rodney Dangerfield got a ton of respect. But Jack Roy, who's got actually, no I think, Jacob That's Cohen, fantastic. born Jacob Cohen. Jacob Cohen. Yeah. And, and changed his name to, to Jack Roy to get away from the Borscht Belt thing and wanted more. Se- and he had a few serious roles, but not terribly many. And it was upsetting for him. Uh, you know, uh, another... Uh, Another comedian who is just worth an absolute crap ton of money who's done very well for himself that has a similar story is Larry the Cable Guy. Yeah. Larry the Cable Guy uh, doesn't get a lot of respect these days. <laughs> hey, you know what I'm talking about. He doesn't get a lot of respect because of the, <laughs> the, the red state type comedy that he does. But that's a that's completely a character. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's nothing like the guy in real life. Mm-hmm. And he just made so much friggin' money, he said he would just stick with uh, it. Jack Varney is also... Uh, Jack Ernest. Barney. Ernest. Is, is oh, yeah. 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 Anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt. That's but right. I'm so, surprised by that. Rodney plays Al Cervic, uh, Dangerfield list this as his favorite role of his long and storied career. So, of course, as I mentioned, when he shot Caddyshack, he was already a very successful stand-up comedian. He was a regular on Carson and all of the other shows, decade of appearances and on variety shows, comedy tours. His role in Caddyshack pretty much just took his persona of, of Ronnie Dangerfield and just brought it to life. Um, and uh, A mentioned that in Caddyshack, Ronnie Dangerfield finally got his respect yeah exactly and that if there uh, if you go to rodney.com i think it still is rodney.com it's, uh-huh. uh, it's that was he was also one of the first um uh, hollywood personas to jump right into the world okay. Wide web and make okay. his own web page and if you go there there's like a little fact sheet and I, i'm pretty sure it'll still say that's why caddyshack was his favorite role because he finally did it right you know mm-hmm. he finally got the right respect for being that perfect version of rodney dangerfield although <clears throat> he was another one that while it was happening thought he was bombing the whole time, right? Because, listen, he, his act was live. Even when he's on Carson, it Mm. was the, he would feed off the energy of the crowd. Mm. And he would know, well, if they're not laughing, I better switch gears or do something. But, of course, he would do takes and no one would laugh. And wow. he'd be like depressed afterward. <laughs> and the other, and like Harold Ramis, the other actors would say, Rodney, we want to laugh. <laughs> laugh, it's going to ruin the audio, and you're just going to have to do it over again. So yeah, he really he worked extremely hard. He would do prep with Harold Ramis every single night wow. before they shot. Um, but he was extremely professional. When, you know, not partying with the, the 20-year-olds who were on the set, they loved Rodney as much as anybody else did. Sure. But, yeah, he uh, he really thought he was doing a horrible, That's amazing. horrible job. That's yeah. amazing. And it wasn't until, again, Caddyshack itself got the respect that everybody went, Rodney, you're a freaking genius. And he was like, hey, finally you noticed. Hey. <laughs> and apparently he, he got that figured out. Of course, of course, we have great movies like Back to School and, uh, and yeah, the rest absolutely. stuff Rodney did. And um, just... 
just a, a, a tragic loss. This is a this is a classic classic picture of, of Rodney. Autobiography. Is that the cover's autobiography? I think very so, yeah. very cool. Very cool. <laughs> but we also have to talk about one that you Utes you Utes might not appreciate the importance or the significance oh, of this man. My man. But Mister. Oops, oh. I got that screwed up. Hold on. Rob, talk for a second. Right, me, hey, me. Talk for a second. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love this uh, part of the the Caddyshack story because there's all these stories. We just talked about Rodney Dangerfield thinking he screwed the whole thing up. We talked about Doug Kenny being so depressed that it didn't have legs when it first came out. Uh, Harold Ramis talks about um, Caddyshack being a $6 million film school, you know, or he talked about it before he died. And um, Ted Knight came into this movie an absolute bona fide star. He was Mm -hmm. a world-class, knew what he was doing, um, had been in movies and TV for 20 years, um, Mm -hmm. and uh, he did not at all appreciate the um, the hedonistic set, all the cocaine. So he came in and wanted to be all professional and whatnot? And knew that Smales was a, like, a, you know, he knew he was the stick-in-the-mud character. He had no problem with the fact that everybody else was cutting up and having fun. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of problems that the set was unprofessional. And, uh, and it turned out that this was his last movie role because he went into TV. He did... Um, Oh too close God. for comfort. Too close for comfort. Thank this you. This is him in too close um, for comfort. Right this here, is actually. him in too close for comfort. I th- I will say he um every time he wore a, a school T-shirt, mm-hmm. he was a cartoonist. It was a TV show, and he was drawing comics at his desk, and he always wore a different uh, college T-shirt or a sweatshirt or whatever. And that were fans of the show would send them in, and he would just wear them if they if it they sent it in and said they were a student at Michigan or whatever. He would wear the T-shirt or the sweatshirt as a character, which I love about him. That was he was also like if you think about that, he was that guy. And he got married one time in 1948 and stayed married to his wife until the day he died. Wow. You can see showing up on Caddyshack's set <laughs> <laughs> might have been a little a lot for him, you know? Um, but uh, but he, um, he had colon cancer and it went into remission. Uh-huh. And then he started on Too Close for Comfort. And three years into – or three seasons into the, the start of the third season of Too Close to Comfort, his colon cancer came back and he didn't survive that. So he took a – a, a leave of absence uh, from the show to get better, and he he did not get better, and he died at sixty two in mm. uh, nineteen eighty six. Hmm. Um, but I understand, Rob, uh, from you that he he did not like working on Caddyshack. Do you have any other reasons than the ones I mentioned? Well, well, no. I mean, the biggest one was because I mean, with with a first time producer and a first time director who really didn't know what the hell they were doing. Oh, sure. Their previous movie was a bunch of 20-somethings just partying and making Animal House. So they kind of brought that to it. And the whole cast and crew stayed in a um, a hotel, a motel, really. But okay. it was right on the golf course in Florida. Mm-hmm. So the deal was they all knew, I can roll out of bed 60 seconds before I'm supposed to be on set, and I'm good. So they just partied it was all alcohol (laughs) and drugs and everything and so call times started getting later and later people stopped showing up to set um and and ted knight you know seven years on the mary tyler moore show yeah which when you're doing weekly comedies like that everything is to the second and mary mary tyler moore show if you never if you're not familiar with it one of the biggest sitcoms of all time it was like the seinfeld of its day yeah And, and so he, he couldn't handle that. It was the lack of professionalism. And he couldn't go to the director or the producer to try and get other people oh in line God. because they were the ones cutting <laughs> the lines on the mirrors. You know, That's it's totally so hard true. to have that discussion. When, oh, oh, so, 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 so,
you, you, you can't. So, yeah, he was pretty miserable. And then on top of that, he kept seeing his part get smaller and smaller oh. and smaller. When when the role, when the, the movie was more about Danny and Tony and Maggie, uh-huh. he was a bigger character. He interacted with all of them. Okay. And as their roles got smaller, his role got smaller. And so, yeah, he was... Uh, he just wasn't happy. Which is wonderful happy. because uh, Caddyshack um, was, and I think, Rob, you're going to talk about Chevy Chase in a second, but Caddyshack was very stereotypical for the, ni- for the 1980 release date because back then the big thing was, was the classism and the class warfare, yeah. right? So this Absolutely. was the young kids usurping wow, the, the whatever, and here he is, the old guard, <laughs> kind yeah. of getting usurped as time went on, yeah. And uh, yeah. speaking of Chevy Chase, let me zip ahead a couple photos here because I screwed up the order. No big deal. Here we go. And Rob, Chevy yeah. Chase. Chevy Roll Chase. Chevy. Come on. I mean, this is great. This is Chevy coming off of, uh, you know, just one year on Saturday Night Live, just the first year. And then he left to become a big star. He only did one um, year. I did not know that. That is amazing. Year. Only one year. And then he went out and then he made foul play with Goldie Hawn, which uh-huh. was a huge hit. And so he was the suave, debonair, you know, he was the one. And he was the star that mm-hmm. got this movie made. They do not make it. They don't green light it. Orion doesn't without Chevy Chase on board, which, again, looking back, he seems like a pretty secondary character now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the time, he was the central figure. So um, one of the thing was they really wanted to make sure that they had the star power because they weren't sure that Harold Ramis would be able to carry things on his own. So he wanted people around them that could help steer him in the right direction. Mm-hmm. There's a story that the, um, the uh, John Peters was the, one of the executive producers, that they had a list of 10 directors who were ready to take over for him uh, <laughs> at any moment. Cause that's how afraid they were. That he wasn't doing <laughs> it. So, yeah. You got Rodney Dangerfield, you got Bill Murray, then you get Chevy Chase. He received the Golden Globe nomination for Foul Play just the year before. Okay. Of course, his work on Saturday Night Live. Um, and then, I mean, listen, we talk about Bill Murray's huge career. What about Chevy's huge career? Oh, giant. giant. And, and here's the thing that I think made Chevy's career even better. At the time, he was Hollywood leading man. Mm-hmm. handsome, yep. tall, you yep. know, I mean, when he blows the smoke out of the side of his teeth, you know, when he's looking at Lacey, you know, <laughs> like he's a bull or something like that. He went against type to play Clark Griswold. And that became what launched him from here to way up here. Okay. That's what did it. Um, Fletch TV series community, six, Absolutely. you know, six seasons in a movie. They're still waiting on the movie part, that kind of stuff. Um, now with Chevy, There also came Chevy's ego, which we have seen plenty of over the years. And um, Cindy Morgan, who's the actress who plays uh, Lacey Underall, um, they did not really get along during the course of this movie. And it just probably started. Cindy has talked about this for years afterwards. It started Mm -hmm. with. One of them said something, and then the other one said something, and neither one of them was big enough to apologize <laughs> for the thing they said. So they just went into every scene with like this animosity going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two really big scenes between um, uh, Lacey and, and uh, Chevy mm-hmm. as uh, Ty, you know, tying me up with your ties, Ty. Yep. yep. Um, the oil. When they're doing the back rub, and he says, here, you just need a little oil. Again, she is completely pissed at Chevy Chase at this point. <laughs> he unscrews the cap 
without her knowing he's going to do this uh-huh. and dumps the whole bottle of oil <laughs> all over her back. And her reaction is, you're crazy. That was not acting. That that was not Lacey. That was Cindy telling Chevy that back he off. was crazy. Right. <laughs> um, and then the second scene is when they're at the piano. So mm-hmm. this was supposed this was actually in between takes. She was getting her makeup touched up. And and Harold just said, hey, Cindy, come over here and sit at the piano j- just for a minute. I want to workshop something with you and Chevy, right? Wow. And so she sits down. She's pissed at him. She barely wants to look at him. And he starts playing the little song, right, and does the thing with the uh, – with the tequila. I was born the tequila. to uh, love you. Let's see. What, I was born I was, to lick your face. Love you. I was born yeah. to Which, love you, but you were born to love me first. Why don't we go into the bedroom? But but yes, but what Rob is about to say is yes. he did the tequila not- shot. Yeah. Right? So they've got two tequila shots lined up and she doesn't know what he's doing. He takes the tequila because <laughs> she said something like, I, I don't know. I don't really know how you're supposed to do this. He throws the tequila over his shoulder. He snorts the salt (laughs) and then sucks on the line and then starts playing the song. Cindy said it was at this moment that she looked up and saw the camera was running. She was like, you you could see the look on her face. She looked at the camera. Then she looks at Chevy. And in her mind, it's just like, you sons of bitches. (laughs) This is going to be in the movie. I just know it. And, you know, Cindy today, like she went through a whole roller coaster of she felt yeah. manipulated. She she says plainly, she says more than once, she was not a terribly good actress at the time. So okay. she was competing with these obviously, not necessarily everybody who was well, much more famous than she was, but people who were well more talented than she was. And she knew it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, she had all this animosity. But I think one of the most magical things about that piano scene, as Rob just stated, is it's incredibly totally improv and it started with harold ramus telling cindy morgan please go sit down and ask me or whatever go tell you so all of that the song lyrics Mm -hmm. the snorting the salt the tossing the tequila all of that is improv from chevy chase it makes him literally a genius in that moment you could have seen and this is the thing that makes me really sad about this movie when you look at retrospectively you see this is who Doug Kenny could have been. Like he had these same chops. He was mm-hmm. this same writer. He was that fast with a joke and he just didn't make it through. And, you know, Chevy has had uh, recently, especially has had some some trouble with his approaching people and his ego and his um, mm-hmm. substance abuse and all that stuff. But, you know, he's also been in the business for been in the business a long years. time and a king, a king of the business for a long time. So we talk hey, about. Hold on, Scott. Before yeah, about, we move on, one, just one other quick story about Cindy Morgan, because okay. I know we're about to move on. Um, during the when um, the the love scene with her and Danny Noonan in the judge's bed, um, they actually John Peters sent photographers from Playboy to the set that day. They were actually going to do a mini spread on her to help promote the movie. Mm-hmm. They never asked her. They never told her. Whoa. And she said, "Listen, I don't have a problem getting naked. No worries at all. You know, it's for the movie. It makes sense. It makes it more real." She said, but you can't just expect me to do this for anybody else except for the movie. And so she refused to do it. And John Peters was going to try to force her to do it. And Harold Ramis eventually stepped in and said, listen, if she's not comfortable doing this, we're not doing this. And so mm-hmm. I give him a huge amount of credit for that. And, and her, yeah. I mean, this is 1979, right? This is, you know, 
there was no women's lib in in Hollywood right. in the 70s and right. 80s. It was all about right. you're a piece of meat and we're going to use you however we want to use you. Mm-hmm. And we don't even have to ask permission. Mm-hmm. She said, that's not how it's going to work with me. And she deserves a huge amount of credit as well as Harold for sticking up for it. Yeah, her. and John Peters is also her con- her contract didn't have an entity clause in it. Okay. And John yeah. Peters was the one who says, "Yeah, no, this is the only way we sell a movie." And she, like Rob says, agreed for the movie I will do this. Okay. Um but uh it was supposed to, you know, it was it wasn't supposed to be there and then when this happened, um, not only did Harold Ramis stick up for her and she stick up for herself, but she fired her agent because her agent <laughs> agreed, agreed with John Peters. Her agent was just like, he's he's the biggest, he's one of the biggest producers in the world. Just can't you just do it once? And she was like, no. Bubble, also, do what he says. It's fine. It's going to be fine. See ya. Which, see ya. I'm not sure if that was great for her career since she didn't much didn't work do a whole again, lot of but, this. but maybe she well, didn't she want to work Tron those movies. after this. She did yes. what? Tron. Tron. She was the female lead in Tron. I did not know that. Yeah. I did now not know that. Now I now I know that. All right, let's talk about the going back when I screwed up yours. Sorry, guys. This is this is crazy to me. This is technically <laughs> the protagonist, technically the lead of the story. And wait for it, it gets deeper. So of course, when you talk about Caddyshack, you're talking about Ted Knight, Ronnie Dangerfield, Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, the Gopher. You talk about the Gopher more than the actual lead of the movie. <laughs> so the the guy who's the lead of the movie. Is uh, is is um, Michael O'Keefe? Not only is he a classically trained actor who has had a long career, but the guy who is completely overshadowed in this movie was nominated for an Academy Award during so, filming. <laughs> yeah. So this 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 dude is, <laughs> is you know it, it's hard. The only way to get to be bigger than him, kudos wise, is to actually win an Academy Award. He was nominated for Academy Award for what was it, Robbie? The um, I forget here. Uh, the uh, the great Santini. The great with, Santini. Um, yeah, wonderful, right. wonderful, wonderful, wonderful movie. And right. he's 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 almost a completely and also ran in this. It's mm-hmm. absolutely bonkers. But he's been working in film and TV ever since. Mm-hmm. And uh, a fun note I learned while A was re- researching this: he was married to Bonnie Raitt for about a decade. Yeah, he just seems like a a lot like uh, Brian Doyle, Doyle Murray, uh, at least in my opinion. He seems to have been constantly working. As an actor, a writer, a producer, mm-hmm. all that stuff, he's more of a character actor, but he's been working since Caddyshack and he's had a really, you know, he's, he's, I don't know, acquitted himself well as a person. Like he's, hasn't, he's, he's worked real hard. He's done a lot of good things that he's proud of. And I think that, you know, he's, he's like an honorary Murray brother who sort of survived the Caddyshack experience, <laughs> you know. And, so, and a lot of the Caddyshack experience in the movie was stuff based on things that the Murray brothers did when they were caddies, right? And including the caddy tournament. Really? Yeah. Right? That's not something they made up, you know, just to do this, trying to win money for college. Ed Murray, who's probably one of the lesser known of the Murray brothers, mm-hmm. he actually won the caddy tournament when he <laughs> was a caddy. Yeah. And so that's where the stories came from. They all blossom from this thing, which is funny. The movie grew out of that core of Danny Noonan trying to get money for college, okay. trying to deal with his crazy family and his crazy who's supposed to be an Irish exchange student, right? I don't know, you know, <laughs> Maggie uh, dealing with his rival frenemy tony denunzio that was the movie mm-hmm. and all of that that's where everything else sprouted from then they got rid of the core or just kept all the sprouts mm-hmm. <laughs> that's and, kind of what happened but yeah a lot of that came from the murray brothers actual experiences and i, I find this hard to believe 
really, and I'm being legitimate, uh, Caddyshack wasn't even nominated for anything. And retrospectively, when the when the Webbies got started to do, or not the Webbies, the Razzies started to do their retrospectives, they mm-hmm. they won a bunch of awards. But it was absolutely under the radar, which to me seems. Um, it seems almost impossible, but then we talked at the top of the hour about this movie really found its its groundswell in VHS. So mm-hmm. that would – we still don't have awards for things that get VHS no. you know, or well, streaming popular. I, I guess so, and, and that that will change the face of awards moving forward. But now you get a lot of a lot of stuff winning awards for mm-hmm. streaming. It's dominating. In, well, now uh, there's Emmys, a Webby, et cetera. Yeah, now there's a Webby and stuff, and, and Emmys, but there weren't before. There weren't those sort of things, especially not in 1980, of course, because there wasn't movies that originated then. on streaming services are getting nominated for Oscars now. Yep. I mean, it has become an entirely different thing. But back in the day, I mean, it was the invention of the VHS and the VA, VCR mm-hmm. and you know, video cassette rental places. That's what made the movie. This could have easily been a forgotten movie. Oh, sure. Saw, mm-hmm. Never thought about it again. And here we are 40 years later, still talking about and it. And it makes you wonder what movies from the forties, fifties and sixties uh, and seventies, I guess that are just completely forgotten that if you go back and watch them, they may have had the same kind of cult classic following. Yeah, and we talk about this uh, every once in a while on Stories Mac, this idea that before there was so many ways to get at at cinema, at reviews, at other other viewers, and to have these discussions, um, you have to wonder, like Citizen Kane shows up on every single top 10, top 100, mm-hmm. top one zillion list, always in the top 10. And you have to wonder if people could have talked about it back in the day and ha- and it had, you know, 80 years worth of uh, armchair reviewers, mm-hmm. would it still hold up? And I'm not saying it wouldn't. I'm just saying what else came out around then? Of course, there was vastly fewer movies coming out, but you have to wonder right. what, what got missed because the studio wanted Citizen Kane to be the one, so to speak. Not dogging Citizen Kane. You guys. Don't email me. Don't email me. I'm not dogging him. I'm making a different point. We got a couple a couple remaining things to talk about with this flick. Just some interesting side notes, some interesting stories. Um, Rob, what is your favorite side story with Caddyshack? Um, I'm going to skip ahead in our little list here, if that's okay. With sure. You. Yeah, these are all. I'm not even sure that I mentioned this. So I've I've ragged on John Peters a few times uh, during this uh-huh. uh, set. I need to give him some props. So because, the, again, Orion was kind of a hands-off company. They let the people on the set really control what was going on. Mm-hmm. One big note that John Peters has was you have two of the biggest comedic geniuses in the world on this set right now, mm-hmm. and they don't have a scene together. Fix that. <laughs> so the scene of Chevy and Bill Murray in Carl Spackler's apartment, you know, in, in the one in the corner garage. of the garage. The shed. the shed, yeah. Yeah, right. Doug Kenny, Brian, Mur- uh, Murray, Brian Doyle Murray, and Harold Ramis talked about that scene over lunch. They shot it that night. They were worried because they would actually, when Chevy went back to um, to host Saturday Night Live the year after he left, uh-huh. there was actually a physical alterca- altercation between Chevy and Bill in the oh hallway. Um, and so they weren't sure how this was going to go, but they basically quickly laid out the scene. The guys ad-libbed the whole scene. And that scene, I mean, you know, think about it. Chinch bugs. People don't, you know, magne- mag- magnanese. People don't even know what that is. <laughs> uh-huh. Right. You know, cannonball. 
Uh, you know, well, they uh, had they had know. to have the weed. They had the weed prop, right? I mean, that yeah, was, I mean, that the, part of it was worked knew, out. They knew where it was going to go, but some of the lines, like uh, you know, pool. you, you got you know what? What's your you're over on uh, Brookware? What, what's your address over there? Uh, two. Make <laughs> <laughs> a line like that. Like, you know, you got a pool over there. Well, we got a pool in a, in a pond, but the pond would Pots. be good for you. Pond be good I for mean, you. That's the kind of stuff that just rolled off their heads, and that that. Scene did not exist, yeah. never existed before the day they shot it. And it's one of the best scenes in the movie. A couple quick points before we head out. Uh, as a yeah, I was writer, gonna ask, what, yeah. is, what do you have a favorite? Uh, my, idea? my, the two, the two things I, I really want are, um, as a writer who's tried to write screenplays, I use screenplays as outlines for novels and it has worked out good with some things, bad with others. For example, Mount Fitzroy was, uh, the screenplay was 40 pages long before I got out of the first chapter. So that, <laughs> that clear doesn't work. The original screenplay for this 250 pages. We just, A and I just had a movie that may have had indie movie may have had funding, except it came in at 121 pages and they wanted it at like 95 and they were just, they just straight up walked. They weren't even waiting for a rewrite. So 250 pages and the original cut of this, Four hours long. I want that cut. I want that cut. So I have two things that I okay. think are interesting. Also a John Peters thing. John Peters. So I think this is a well-known uh, story for Caddyshack. When it got done with this four-hour cut and 250 pages, it was flawed. It was hard to get together. It mm-hmm. was There was no through line because they had all this improv stuff. And like Rob uh, pointed or elucidated, they had pulled away the actual roots of the plot. So all they had was the stuff stuff, and that didn't make any sense. So John Peters suggests, why not focus on the gopher? Okay. And so the gopher, all of the gopher scenes are post-production. And all of the gopher stuff, um, there are some schools of thought that posit that it all happened except for the explosion <laughs> in Carl's head. Like he, he, he created all of that, which is why he's the only one who really interacts other than that um, groundsman – the Simpsons ground. Got to kill He's the golfers. Yeah. Other than that, like, don't let that happen again because he, that guy gets a complaint from a, from a member, mm-hmm. comes, comes to Carl. Carl makes it his life's work. And I find that fascinating that it maybe nobody else, there wasn't ever any other gopher. But I also find this. Um, I, in, during the review, I read, I think it was on Vox maybe, I read this thing, which for me totally works. Um, here on Story Smack, we wanted to review Up in Smoke a while back, and Scott and I started to watch it. And we were like, oh, no, yeah, no, this doesn't hold up. <laughs> and the thing is, in a way, for me anyway, Caddyshack doesn't quite hold up, but it kind of does hold up. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful movie. So I, I saw this, and I thought it was perfect. Um, Alden Ford, I think he was writing for Vox, says, in the end, what's great about Caddyshack is that it's a museum piece. It's sort of a specimen. It's a fish growing legs and learning to breathe air. From an evolutionary perspective, it's absolutely fascinating. But you don't laugh all that much when you're in a museum. So I think people seeing it today have a different reaction than we have because we grew through it, like lived through all that as well. But it doesn't get the same reception from people half my age. Also, that, that is the kind of quote written by someone who has been a member at a snooty golf club their whole life. It, exactly, which is lovely. Like, that's what I love about it. It totally works, right? But but I'm not sure that, well, I, I'll say this, but it's super obvious. Like, this movie was not going to get made today. It's amazing that it got made back then, let's be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's part of the reason that, like, it doesn't have a great, you know, a, a, unlike Star Wars and stuff, where you can introduce it to your kids and then they mm-hmm. go on, this doesn't 
have that same those same legs. And I love that description of it is like it's perfect as it is. And we're going to look at it as a retrospective kind of a, a, a little kaleidoscope or snow globe or something. I think that about wraps it up for this episode of Story Smack featuring Caddyshack with our special guest, Empty Set Movie Maven and PG Hopeful. Rob Otter. Rob, thank you for being on again. Would as you like ever. to join us for the next one? What is the next one? Au revoir, go fair. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, what is the next one? Well, uh, <laughs> Rocky or the Karate Kid, I think. Well, it's up to God, you. Uh, Rocky. The Karate Kid? Rocky. Okay, sounds the, good. The Karate Kid. Well, let's do two things real quick, Rob. Two things. Okay. You need to think about what holiday movie we're going to watch because the next one oh. is going to be two weeks from this episode, which will bring us to the end of November. And then we want something fun that a lot of people have watched. Uh, and the Maven gets to decide. The Maven gets the Maven gets to pick the the Ooh. holiday season movie. Doesn't have to be Christmas. Doesn't have to be Thanksgiving. But it's got to be holiday season related, and it can't be Die Hard. It cannot be Die Hard because we've already story smacked that. So I think the next one we will do since it's had a resurgence, uh, and it was in the Gizmo tournament. We're going to go with uh, we're going to go with Karate Kid because nice. there's a lot of fun I stuff like in the Karate That's Kid. Great. About a follow. I'm in. Rob, thank you for being here. We are now going to take you off the camera. And since I don't have the ability to shut him the hell up, he's going to have yeah. to. Yeah. <laughs> talkie, 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 talkie. Bye, Jenny. Be Bye. Love you. We're out. Hello, everyone. All right. A and I are going to finish up this uh, this show. Uh, Tracy Shanks, those go Oilers, Mr. Otto. Very nice. Oh, yeah, nice. We are finishing up Caddyshack. Baby, let's take everybody out with a smile and a wave. Uh, so, you guys, this was episode 59 of Story Smack. You can always find Scott and I online. Scott is at Scott Sigler at Twitter and Instagram. And his Facebook page is facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. I am at a real girl on Twitter and at a.real.girl on Instagram. I'm not very often on Twitter, though. You can find us online at facebook.com slash Story Smack. You can watch us stream Story Smack live at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler twitch.tv slash Scott Sigler and youtube.com slash Scott Sigler. We would love to have you join our Story Smack two Saturdays a month. In addition to Story Smack, we do a twice weekly live stream called Sigler in Place. It's on Tuesdays and Thursdays, right where you're watching this. It starts at 6 p.m. Pacific time. And last, Scott releases an unabridged episode of a serialized novel every week. You get episodes every Sunday for free via iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more. Just go to scottsigler.com slash subscribe for links. We really hope you subscribe so you can hear Scott's books and more Story Smack goodness and more Sigler in Place goodness in the future. And until the next episode, we will talk talk to you all all real soon. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.